Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our walk through and look at the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 75 and the horn of righteousness lifted. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first that your word is truth, that we can stand on it, that we can know that all of the ways of the Lord are, are just and holy and good and perfect because you are good and holy and just and perfect without blemish. You're, all of your ways are good. So, Lord, we thank you that you've given to us your word, which is clear, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, it speaks to the, to the issues and the matters of the heart. And so, Lord, we, we are thankful. We're thankful that your word is true. And so, Lord, as we look at this great psalm today, we pray, Lord, that we, you would take it and you would plant it deep into our hearts and into our lives, that you would help us to walk in it and by it, that you would take it, Lord, and uh, help it to light, the, light our way, that if we are facing discouragement, that, that we would be lifted up by looking to what your word has to say. If we're facing difficult situations, Lord, not that we would look primarily and first at them, but that we would look to what your word has to say and, and what your word, how your word points us to the only hope and help in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we, we thank you for this time. We thank you that Isaiah 55, 11 says that your word will not return without void, that it will do and it will accomplish all that, uh, the, all that you aim. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to uh, Psalm 75. Psalm 75 says this. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. For your name is near, we recount your wondrous deeds, at, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who execute judgment putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. One of the most important precepts for good worship is the dialogical principle. The idea of the dialogical principle is that a worship service is a meeting of God with his people so that there is a dialogue in the service. God calls his people, after all, to worship through his word, and the people sing to his praise and pray for his presence. 
God speaks through the reading of the word and, and the people respond by professing faith, confessing sin, and seeking pardon in Christ alone. God speaks through the preached word of God and God acts through the sacraments and the people respond by singing to him and praying to him with thanks in their hearts because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And a good example of the dialogical principle is found in our psalm today in Psalm 75. The psalm breaks into four sections. In verse 1, we're going to see that people give praise to God with thanksgiving. In verses 2 through 5, we're going to see God speaks, assuring his people of his care and warning the proud and the ungodly. Verses 6 through 8 present the pastor's reflection on what God has said. In verses 9 through 10, the people of God respond with a pledge to act on what the Lord declared. Now, Psalm 75, it continues the theme of the judgment of God that began in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, Asaph admitted his distress over the apparent success of the ungodly until he returned to the sanctuary and remembered God's judgment. Psalm 74 is a plea for God to intervene against the wicked, concluding in confidence as a psalmist remembers the past deeds of the Lord. In Psalm 75, he has learned these lessons well. And so he no longer doubts or even complains against God, but praises him from the opening verse. Psalm 75 reflects the psalmist's grateful realization that while events in the world are often troubling, God nevertheless is near. His judgments are timely, and the wicked will eventually be punished in full for the evil that they've done. So first, let's consider what it means to give thanks to the Lord. And in this spirit of faith, Psalm 75, it begins in verse 1 with a very positive note saying this, We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. That is, when a congregation On the Lord's Day gathers for worship, one of the chief purposes is to thank God for his innumerable blessings. When Asaph came back to the temple in Psalm 73, recalling the judgment of God on the wicked and how they took away his envy and his anger in Psalm 73, 17. In Psalm 74, Asaph remembered God as the eternal king who works salvation in the midst of the earth, according to Psalm 74, 12. And this insight restored his confidence in God to answer prayer. And now in this psalm today, he returns to the worship service and has thanksgiving in his heart. True worship that is centered on God's self-revelation in the word will produce thankfulness that will go forth in praise. Douglas Jones writes that while complaint is a flag of ingratitude, yet by grace, God's redemption and creation ought to keep us in a perpetual state of thanks, which burst out in celebration at every opportunity. And the particular cause for thanks in Psalm 75 is the awareness that the Lord is near in verse 1, when he says, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your name is near. God's name stands not only for his person, but also for all of the promises that are in his revealed word. He is present to be the God who he declared himself to be to our fathers in the past. The psalmist praises God for being present in a way that his people can always rely on. Now, in Psalm 75, verse 1, it specifies that God is present through the remembrance of his saving works. When he says, we recount your wondrous deeds, the worshiping community sings. 
God has stretched out a mighty hand to help his people in past times of need, parting the Red Sea, empowering Gideon's you know, little band against the Midianites, and sending David's stone to strike down the giant Goliath, to name just a few instances, so that the people who worship can be thankful to God for the help that he will have for them too. One of the greatest times, let me say this again, one of the greatest blessings in times of trouble is to remember that the Lord is near. You know, a pa- your pastor will be with you when, when you go to the hospital bed or at a graveside or in a home when a tragedy is struck or you have a marital difficulty. And he can bring a few more comforting passages than the promise that God is close to his people in time of need. And yet, this message that God is near is throughout the entire book of Psalms, which makes sense because the psalmists speak to us in the midst of the circumstances of our lives. And when we think of these types of psalms that speak about the nearness of God, we we may be uh, interested in reading ones that speak to sickness, about sin or grief, and they include passages that give assurance that God is near in his mercy and grace. Psalm 34, 7 and Psalm 34, 18 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 37, 39 through 40 says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is our stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. Psalm 121, 1 through 2 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, notice the emphasis throughout this psalm in Psalm 75 and how we can know that God is near. Well, through his word. William Van Gemeren says, In the remembrance and the retelling of the history of salvation lies the comforting affirmation of God's closeness to his people. But we need to go further. We need to say that we not only know that God is near, but God is actually brought near through his word. The congregation thanks God because his name is near. And the way this happens is this. We recount your wondrous deeds, verse 1 of this psalm tells us. And so the way to have a thankful heart that worships God is to experience God's presence as delivered through the preaching and the reading and the studying of his word. Worship that thanks God centers on the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. Paul makes this point in Romans 10, 6-8, quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 30, 12-14, which says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul's point is, is that we do not truly experience God's presence through a static worship that seeks to bring heaven down or by spiritual exercises designed to work God's presence up, Instead, God is near to us as his word is proclaimed by our lips and is believed in our hearts. Are you conscious of God's nearness to you with the same power, same saving power that he has shown uh, to you and to others as well? Well, you can know God's presence through his word with the result that you'll be thankful to God as you worship him together with fellow believers as you gather under biblically qualified male leadership in your local church. 
And this psalm has more to say to us. And our second point, we'll consider a message of assurance and warning. A message of assurance and warning. And according to this dialogical principle of worship, the congregation interacts with God as he speaks to us from his word. Now, Psalm 75, it follows this pattern as God responds to the praise of his people with a message given by and through the psalmist. He begins first with a word of assurance to humble and help needy believers. This message of assurance reminds us that despite all appearances, God is always in charge so as to uphold his order in the world. He says this in Psalm 75, 3, which says, When all the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Now, this statement assumes that there are times when it seems as if the world is tottering and God's moral order is being overthrown so that wickedness is going to take over. Now, some scholars even suggest that Asaph may be referring to the Assyrian invasion under Sennacherib, which led to the siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C., The psalm might equally refer to an internal rebellion such as that of David's son Absalom, the the division of the Israelite kingdom in the time of Solomon's son Rehoboam, or the reign of wickedness and idolatry in the time of Queen Athla in the 9th century BC. And whether the situation involves you know, foreign invasion, internal revolt, government breakdown, or simply a time of moral and spiritual collapse, the faithful people of God need to know that the Lord is always sovereign over everything. And although the foundations of society and even culture seem to be shaking, the Lord is keeping steady the pillars of his reign. Knowing this, God's people have reason, even in the worst of times, to uphold their witness to God, to his word, calmly obey his commands, and be thankful when they gather together in worship. This is because the Lord is immutable. The Lord never changes. He is the same. He remains the same. He will always be the same. Let your, let Think about that for just a minute. He, Hebrews 13, 5 and verse 8 say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Think about that. In, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your great pain, remember that the Lord is in control. Nothing in your life is outside of his providence. Everything is being exercised under the hand of God for our good. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Genesis 50, 20, God is turning around what was meant for evil and turning it around for the good of his people and for their glory. This is why, you know, we have epistles like 1 Peter. Uh, We have the epistle of Hebrews. Uh, Both are written just as two examples among, I could use many. They're written to help struggling Believers who are facing intense periods of suffering and, and difficulty. And the Lord is, the Lord put that in His Word to help us to face those times with His help, with the help of His Word, with the help of His Spirit, with the help of His people. Now, Psalm 75 3 might be taken as a defense of a doctrine known as common grace. This doctrine states that even outside of God's redemptive redemption of sinners through faith in his gospel, he is graciously working to prevent sin from taking over completely. It is by God's common grace that, that he is graciously working to prevent sin from taking over completely. 
It is by God's common grace that the unbelieving world exhibits certain virtues and, and that many things of beauty are preserved. Common grace, though, is not saving grace, but its purpose is to hold an evil world together and provide resources for the advance of the gospel. And for this reason, God's common grace is a cause for his people to praise him with thanks, to rejoice knowing that God keeps steady the pillars of history to hold off complete collapse until Christ returns in glory. The particular emphasis of Psalm 75 is that God upholds the world's mutual order by judging the wicked in his own good time. In verse 2 he says, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. And the list of outstanding evil powers brought down by God is impressive. Pharaoh has list having boasted against God in Exodus 5.2. Who is the Lord, he says, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and then boasted about his home city in Daniel 4.30. It is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal reverence and for the glory of my majesty. Herod put to death the apostle James and allowed the people to worship him as God. And more recently, Murdoch Campbell records Adolf Hitler as looking at a picture of himself riding proudly on a white horse on which was written the opening statement of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. Hitler then challenged Christ, declaring, I am providence. All these evil rulers at one time seemed almost godlike in the triumph of their evil regimes, and yet each of them was brought low by God in his own time under providence. Campbell writes, Pharaoh and his hosts are swept to destruction. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a companion of the beast of the field. Herod is devoured by worms, and Hitler uh, commits suicide. God's eventual judgment provides Christians with the answer as to the upheavals of immorality and violence that seem to engulf the world today. America and the West are experiencing a de evolution of morality, especially concerning sexuality and gender identity today that hardly could have been imagined a few years ago. Legislatures and courts arrogantly overthrow thousands of years of moral judgment in demanding acceptance for homosexuality and the redefinition of marriage. Backed up by the coercive government powers, the sources of anarchy seem to be shaking the very pillars of moral authority. And yet to alarmed and even bewildered Christians, God declares in Psalm 75, 3, when the earth totters, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. That is to say, the Lord reigns supreme. He is supreme. He is, he is in control. The hand of providence is not teetering and tottering. The Lord is always, as we just talked about briefly, he remains the same. In fact, Titus 1-2, to add to this, it says that God never lies. That means that God will always act consistently with his revealed character in the word, and he will always act in accordance with how he has revealed himself. And so we can say then that whatever the morally reckless, cultural, evil rulers may insist, God's creation order of male and female remains the fundamental category of human life. That is to say, those who rebel against the order of God bring only chaos unto themselves instead of the wholesomeness that they, they pretend to achieve. 
And however the state may define marriage, only the sexually compatible union of a committed man and woman can provide the basis for a stable family and society. The more a nation erases the moral lines and introduces chaos into human relations, the the more breakdown and suffering it's going to experience. God warns in Psalm 75 too, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. This rule, it holds true for bloodthirsty violence of Muslim jihadists in the Middle East with their almost unbelievable cruelty towards Christians and even other Muslims. However relentless and formidable their terror may seem, God is able to make them collapse into their own ruin. And because God is certain to judge, Psalm 75, 4 through 5, it adds a warning to the arrogant and evil when it says, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. That is in the day of God's judgment, which is certain to come either within history or at history's end when Christ returns, the boasting of the wicked will stick in their throats. The upraised horns of their tyranny will be broken off. There is a God and he is not far off and he is able to uphold uphold the order that he created and ordained. God is not mocked by the evil of our days. Psalm 75 helps us with a matter that vexes many tried and true believers. Why why does it take God so long to act in judgment? Why do I have to go through what I'm going through? The Bible's answer is that God judges in a way, and at that time, that that best is best to accomplish his great purpose. One of God's great purposes is to save sinners who repent and believe and put their hope and trust in Christ alone. And so he delays his judgment so as to give the gospel its full opportunity to save sinners like you and I through by repenting and believing and putting our hope and trust in Christ alone. Paul writes that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, Romans 2.4 says, to which he has a warning that we should not thus presume on God's patience, but instead should repent so as to be saved while there's still yet time. And a second reason why God waits to bring judgment is so evil might have time to work itself out to come to full fruition. That is to say, if God were to judge immediately the way that we so often desire, evil might not be displayed in its true colors and God's justice might often be misunderstood. God informs us, though, that he delays so as to judge with equity in verse 2 of Psalm 75. God told Abraham that his judgment on the wicked inhabitants of Canaan would wait until the fourth generation in Genesis 15, 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But when the time of judgment arrives, God's victory is fully displayed. And so God said to Pharaoh, when when it was time for that tyrant to fall in Exodus 9, 16, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's message of final justice encourages Christians to go about the business of serving, of obeying, and of glorifying the Lord. An example of this reasoning is shown in Isaiah chapter 3, in which God threatens Judah with complete moral and societal breakdown as a result of the people's idolatry. God foretold that their economy would collapse, that the military would fail, and that chaos would destroy the integrity of families. 
Isaiah 3 sadly describes the trajectory that America and the once Christian West are following today. What are the godly to do in such times? Well, the answer is given in Isaiah 3.10, in which God told the prophet, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. You see, this is why we need to stand faithful. We need to stand on the only word that God has given in his word. When we need to not be shaken, we need to not be stirred, we need, we need to stand, we need to stand on the word of God alone that testifies of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't need to make things up. We don't need to do, we don't need to pretend that this is a fairy tale that we're living in and, and that we need the, that magic genie bottle and, and, and we need a, a bunch of wishes and we need karma and we need good luck. We have what God has said in the 66 books of the word of God, and that is enough. And in the time of great gender and sexual confusion, we need to stand on what God says a man is and what a woman is, how God defines these terms, and how God made marriage for one man and one woman for life under the Lord. And we need to not be afraid to speak up we need to have courage. We need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you help me with boldness? Would you help me to, be, to speak your word, uh, in the truth uh, of your word in love? Would you help me, Lord, to contend for the faith? By the way, those are just praying back the Bible to the Lord, speaking the truth in love and asking the Lord to help you do that. That's, that's Ephesians 4.15. Uh, asking the Lord to give you boldness, to help you to speak, uh, to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's Jude 3. Asking the Lord to help you to correct opponents with gentleness. That's 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And that's what we need to do as Christians. We need to speak up for the honor and glory of our Savior and of our King. Let's consider our next point now. Putting down and lifting up, putting down and lifting up. Well, beginning in verse six of this psalm, in Psalm 75, the psalmist turns to the preaching of his sermon, which every good worship service includes. And so in verses two through five, God speaks as seen by his use of the divine eye. In verses six through eight, it's a psalmist who serves as a preacher, offering reflections to the faithful based on the message that God has spoken in verses two through five. And so this sermon, it presents a two-part message. The first of which notes that every advancement or abasement comes from the Lord. Look with me at verses six through seven, which says, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The ancient Romans believed in the goddess Fortuna, who turned her great wheel to determine the fortunes of men and women. And scripture teaches us that we live in the presence of a moral God who cares about our conduct and our relationship with the Lord as people of either faith or unbelief. God controls history in the great affairs of the world and in the small affairs of every individual life. And so we should look to him both for our circumstances and for the grace to trust him and to do his will. That is to say, when the psalmist says that we should look either to the east or to the west, nor from the wilderness that is the south for lifting up, he warns us against relying on earthly powers or exaltation. 
Lifting up here refers to an animal's raising its horn in strength and victory over others. John Calvin points out that our normal experience suggests that the opposite of what the psalmist teaches, since the majority of men who attain to the highest degrees of honor owe their elevation either to their own policy and underhand dealing or to popular favor and partiality or to other means of an earthly kind. In fact, however, this does not happen by chance, Calvin says, but by the secret purpose of God. You see, God knows how to exalt the ungodly. So, as to more perfectly humble them. And God knows how to prepare the godly for high positions by training them in lowly places. One application of this principle is that Christians should not crave positions that receive attention or the praise of men. Jesus once uh, said that someone invited to a feast in Luke 14, 8 through 10, should not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more Uh, Someone invited to a feast should not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin uh, with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Jesus' point here is that that we should allow God to determine the attention we get, the promotion we receive, the opportunity he decides for us. God is the one who knows best how we can serve and what he intends for his people, and thus we should always serve greatly, gratefully wherever he assigns us, leaving our advancement to his will. And Jesus concluded with the principle of which he himself was the greatest example in Luke 14, 11, which says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is to say, Jesus humbled himself by taking up the cross and was exalted by God in his glorious resurrection. So those who trust in the Lord realize that the only honor that truly matters is that which comes from God, which he bestows most highly on his humble servants. So the psalmist offers a second point to his sermon that is designed to put our priorities in the right place. In verse 8, when he says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And since we're all sinners, he argues, what really matters is not what other men and women think of us, but how we stand before the judgment of the perfectly just and holy God. The image is often repeated in Scripture showing God as holding forth a cup with foaming wine well mixed as he does in verse 8 of this psalm. The description here emphasizes the teeming dread with the cup, its red color depicting divine wrath. Charles Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, said this, that it is blood for blood, foaming vengeance for foaming malice, adding the very color of divine wrath is terrible. What must the taste be? The psalmist sees God as tilting his cup of wrath to the lips of the wicked on the day of his judgment, leaving them no choice but to drink from the bottom, where he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, as he says in Psalm 75, 8. And it's true, when God acts in history to judge a people, people of all kind will feel the effects of the calamities that God has mixed. But 
It is only the wicked who drink the cup of God's wrath down to its drag. Many godly people, they suffer injustice. They they face trials. They face sorrows of all kind. But when they get to the bottom, God provides a sweet and a wholesome drink of salvation in Christ alone. Now, but at the bottom of God's cup of wrath for the wicked are the bitter remnants of his just retribution leading to eternal condemnation and utter darkness. And in verse 8, it chronicles the dreadful end of the wicked who refuse to repent and believe in Christ alone when God showed them patience and mercy instead of lifting up their horn with arrogance in the face of God. And when the day of judgment comes for such people, Spurgeon writes, the full cup must be quaffed. The wicked cannot refuse the terrible onslaught, for God himself pours it out for them and into them. Vain are their cries and entreaties. They once could defy him, but that hour is over, and the time to requite them is fully come. And so when we put verses 6 through 8 together, what we see is the point that the psalmist is making in light of the message that God is conveying in this psalm. Since God is the true and the only judge, we should not seek earthly preference and advancement, but should make the forgiveness of our sins our prime pursuit through Christ alone. How we stand with respect to God here is always the chief matter in our life. The Bible declares that there is, in fact, a way for sinners to escape the just judgment and the fiery wrath of God, namely through faith in the Savior whom God has sent, His Son, the Lord Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made it plain that he would himself drink the cup of wrath for all who rely on his saving work through a true and a living faith in Christ alone. And so dreadful was the thought of taking the wrath of God for our sins that Jesus asked the Father for another way for our salvation. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, it says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How terrible is the cup of wrath. And yet Jesus was willing to drink this cup for those who come to him by repenting and confessing their sins and seeking salvation in Christ alone, granting us in its place the cup of blessing from God in eternal life. Well, as we wrap up our time together, let's consider witness, worshipers, and workers. Witnesses, worshipers, and workers. In the final two verses of our psalm today, Uh, The congregation gives its amen to the teaching of God and of the psalmist, coupled with their resolute response when he says in verses 9 through 10, But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Here is the three-point agenda for responding to the message of God's sovereign judgment over men and over history. First, The people resolve to declare it forever in verse 9. They will spread the news to others about the nearness of God, both to save and to judge, to lift up and to cast down. And this mirrors the calling of us as Christians today. Our lives are not to be dedicated to self-advancement and the pursuit of earthly riches or, or power and honor. If God decides to bless our work and to elevate us to high positions of influence or wealth, then we accept them as gifts to be used on his behalf. But our passionate calling is declared to a world in darkness. The light of God has come to us in Christ alone. Second, the congregation commits to a lifestyle of worship in verse 9. He says, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. 
And by referring to the Lord as the God of Jacob, the people remember covenant promises that the Lord has fulfilled, promises for which we worship the Lord as he has revealed himself in the word. Our worship is therefore centered with joy on the covenant fulfillment that has come through Jesus Christ and the eternal life that God has provided for us through faith in Christ alone. And so whatever our earthly circumstances, we have the privilege of praising a God of salvation whose pledge secured for us the cup of blessing forever. Finally, the people of God determined to live in line with the judgments of God as shown in verses 9 through 10. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And so far as we are able, we will follow God's lead in supporting truth and godliness while doing our best to thwart the cause of evil. H.C. Leipold writes that the believer will do whatever he can to check the influence of the wicked and to promote the success of the righteous. This mandate will shape our private relationships as well as our civic participation in history and in society where Christians will be at the forefront encountering social ills such as uh, abortion, racism, uh, sex trafficking, and other moral obscenities. If God's presence is real, and if God's will in his time to judge all things in equity, as he said, then surely Psalm 75, it shows us the way to live. We live as witnesses, we live as worshipers, and as workers for the righteousness of God. We believe and serve those who have been saved by grace through faith in the blood of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus, who secures our forgiveness before the throne of God. In this way, whatever circumstances God ordains for our lives, we can anticipate an ending in joy. Jesus will declare in Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, the heart that we have for you desires for those who are in Christ. They earnestly long to at that last day when they stand before you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest. Lord, what, a, what an incredible promise that you spoke there in that moment. And it is, it is a promise, Lord, that you will give to those who are faithful to the end, those who stand fast, on your word, on the, the salvation that you alone provide to us, that you, by your grace, not by your effort, not by our emotions, not by some dream or word outside of scripture, we stand on this word. We stand on the 66 pages of, of the word, 66 books, excuse me, that constitute the word of God. And so we stand, we stand not in our own power, we stand under the righteousness of, of a savior who has imputed our sin to us, not because of us, but because of Christ. Oh, Lord, what a Savior we have. So, Lord, as we conclude our time today, I pray that, that you would take this word, that you would plant it deep into our hearts and into our minds, and, and not only resulting in change, change where we must grow, change where we need to deal with areas that you're addressing and highlighting even now. But Lord, even in the midst of this, I pray that as the psalmist does, that, that, and we know that you are near. We thank you, Lord, for your revealed character. We thank you that you dwell among your people by your spirit who are united to you by faith in Christ alone. Lord, we love you. Help us, help us not only to know you in just an intellectual way, 
Help us to know you, Lord, in a, in a transforming way as we walk by faith and not by sight and the revealed promise and know the revealed character in the word of God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.